Hello, March Mad Men listeners. You are joining Under the Shadow vs. Oculus, already in progress. This episode examines 2016's Under the Shadow and determines a winner. Enjoy. Well, we are back and ready to talk about our second movie of this competition, and that means it's time for this. Our second beer of this competition. Oh, yes. Second beer of the last 20 minutes. I am drinking the Chavez Ravine Hazy IPA. It's a very Dodgers-specific beer. I uh, obtained this from the bachelor party that I just attended, along with a nice case of COVID-19. Possibly. Don't don't fear for John Evans yet. Uh, wait, wait two weeks, and if I'm not back on the show, then you can worry. Yeah. All right. Well, um, it's kind of dripping on me, but uh, it's lovely. I'm, I'm definitely enjoying it. So, uh, Rich, looks like you've got something to crack. I do. I have the inappropriately uh, titled uh, Weekend Vibes from Corona Brewing Company, another delicious uh, tall boy IPA. You can find your local Trader Joe's here in Southern California. Check it out. By the way, I want to point out, everyone, that this is the first time we've done this show on video, and I don't think you all are going to get to see it, but for for the sake of the participants, we get to watch each other crack beers, and it, it's fun. It's like we're all hanging out in the same room. I can even see what Vic has going, but for our listeners, tell us what you're about to open. I am about to open the uh, Dragon's Milk Bourbon Barrel Aged Stout from New Holland Brewing. Uh, it's a favorite, although I do feel like this is, I feel like we're all drinking kind of not our usual usual here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a not a New Belgium triple or a Honey Hips or a Pizza Port. So uh, good, good on everybody for expanding everyone's horizons a little bit. Yeah, no sculpin. And speaking of horizons, uh, Rich has moved into another room, which is very cinematic. Uh, I wish y'all could uh, watch that camera work. The Steadicam was Stanley Kubrick approved. It was very smooth, Rich. It, you were gliding there, so so well done. That's how you get Emmy nominations, John. <laughs> as smooth as this beer I'm about to open. Oh, nice. Uh, Vic is really good at playing to the mic on his bottle opening. Something they don't do a lot in Iran is pop bottles and drink alcohol. So that's our segue to Under the Shadow. Folks, I got to tell you, I did not expect to get a ton out of this viewing. I was wrong. This was a screening of this film that increased my admiration for the movie overall. It did have revelations that, for whatever reason, felt new to me this time. And that's the mark of a damn good movie that will age well, I think, over time. Our protagonist's fitness as a mother is the central conflict. It can be argued, as I mentioned earlier, but it can't be argued that the movie believes that she should be judged entirely on that fitness. It's just that for her identity at this point, that's all her society has left her. And now that identity is very much in doubt. So it's a high-stakes situation. Fascinating, complex, highly dramatic stuff. This movie was probably going to get unceremoniously bounced by Oculus uh, going into these viewings, in my mind. But I really dig Under the Shadow. So it's, it's going to be cool to talk about it with y'all. 
Well, I guess we'll find out, John. Yes, we will. All right. Well, uh, let's start with the highlight sequence. Rich, do you have one, or was it the final credits? (laughs) I can tell you my low light is definitely towards the end of this film. I wasn't really planning on going first. I won't say that I'm a huge advocate for this film. I did not have the same experience you had. I found your lead into this movie that you just gave like fairly compelling and I, I think you've made some some interesting arguments already tonight about this movie i just wasn't picking it up in either of my viewings at least in a way that i found particularly meaningful i found this movie to be a little more akin to the babadook which i haven't seen in, in a long time but it was a little too focused on the, the mother-daughter relationship Whereas I felt like the, the horror itself was a bit of an of an afterthought. All that said, this movie had some really effective scares. A lot of them were very sudden, and a lot of them were dream sequences. And in a movie played by dream sequences, there was one that really stood out to me, where our heroine, if you want to call her that, certainly our protagonist, um, Vic made an allusion to this earlier, she wakes up in the middle of the night, to find uh, a man whose identity we, we never really see. We don't see his face. We just see his body. She believes that she's alone. She has every reason to believe that she's alone in her apartment. She wakes up and she finds him in her bed. And she's confused. And she argues that it must be a dream, that he can't be real. And he argues back that he is, in fact, real, but that he's not there for her. He's there for her daughter. Some mysterious dialogue ensues before she starts to get a little nervous And it becomes a fight, uh, if not an outright attack, in which the the spirit itself seems to sweep under the sheet and pounce on top of the woman, driving her out of the bed. The mother gets up. She runs into the other room where she finds her daughter awake in the middle of the night, having a tea party and screaming back at her. It has all the earmarks of a dream sequence, but the great twist here is that it's not. The neighbors come over and check it out, and they assure her that no one's in the room. But we are assured that at last the horror in this movie is not a dream, that the terror is real, and that the daughter is in fact acting very, very strange. Something is wrong in this movie. For me, it highlights the fact that this is a horror sequence that works because it's woven into the story when you've got a lot of horror sequences around it that are sort of tacked onto it. I just wish that I was seeing that the scary parts of this movie a little more tied into the, to the main plot as they are here. That was my runner up for my highlight sequence. And I do agree that it's good. And I hadn't actually really pinpointed the the ways that it ties into the plot. Although I definitely noticed the ways that the scares, which I feel like are sort of the weakness of the film. It's not that they're not effective, but a lot of them are, are sort of dream sequences. And a lot of it, it, it feels very much like the director whose name is Babak Anvari, I believe. He seems like someone who has very much studied the uh, sort of the American horror template. And he's done this interesting job of, of applying it and applying the scares uh, to this film. The, the sort of cultural elements are always what jumped out at me watching it the first time, which John sort of alluded to. I mean, there are, there is a lot of complex and, and interesting stuff to it regarding Rich's specific scene. What I really like about it is 
not just the way that it weaves into the plot, but there's something about the movement when the car- when the when the the male figure disappears under the sheets, and it's a quality that applies to a lot of the scares that feels very different. And I think that's why I brought up the 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 way that he's clearly sort of studied the the Hollywood aesthetic when it comes to this kind of horror film, because he does bring something to the table. It's almost hard to articulate, but the effects in the movie have a very peculiar feel that isn't unreal. It doesn't feel low budget, but it does just feel different uh, in a way that that does make the scares that are there work uh, just on a, on a, a purely visceral level. Yeah, the evil is very fluid. Like it, it moves in a in a way that's kind of that's a little more slippery than a lot of the stuff that I feel like we're we're used to seeing. And I agree, it's 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 tough to put your finger on. But yeah, this scare in particular, especially because you don't actually see anything, it's actually like buried underneath the cover. And it's all about the way that that he moves that that figure underneath the cover that makes it so terrifying. That and the and the, the performance of the the mother in, in this scene, which I I do believe and I, I buy her as being terrified in it. So I'm with you. There is a unique quality to the to the horror in this movie. My takeaway with this is definitely not, oh, this guy is trying to be Hollywood. We have two conflicting points here. On the one hand, we're saying these scares are feel different, and I agree with that, but he he's not auditioning for American films here, I feel that this does feel very distinct and different. And I like even yet yeah, the staging of this scene where the husband is, his face is down. He's recognizable. It's like, yeah, that's the husband. He's lying in the bed. And suddenly it's like, he's just sucked under the covers, but in a weird way that it's not like, Oh, he's there. And now he's a victim. It's, it's just, strange and disconcerting and uh, effective. So yeah, I, I really like the, the visual effects are, are good. The flapping of this, what do you call that? Like it's not a burka, but like this strange, it's, it's got like a floral print. What the ghost is wearing, like has sort of a, almost a J horror, amorphous, almost prehensile quality to it that is really creepy and it can be huge or it can be small and it can look like a person or it can look like this giant almost tent as in that basement sequence where they just become enveloped by it. I, I just, I find them that all that stuff really effective personally. I just looked it up guys. And in fact, burka is the, the correct term. That is the head, the head to toe covering is uh is a burka so yes that is the the visual i feel like and i agree he gets he gets a lot of good mileage out of that all right vic what's your highlight sequence riches was really my runner-up and i was sort of leaning toward it and then i was reviewing the film as we were leading up to the podcast the sequence that really jumped out at me as i was kind of skipping around is there's a, a right before that too long before that there's a sequence where the mother, I'm going to say Shade, is asleep and she wakes up and her daughter's in the room and she picks up her daughter, sort of cradles her, and then she looks down and her daughter has become the, the missing doll. You get a little bit of a jump because the door sort of slams closed in this uh, very sort of traditional haunted housey way and she wakes up. But when she wakes up, 
the camera is is perpendicular so that when she sits up, she sits up and the camera moves with her in a way that she is now positioned perpendicular to where you would expect her to be. And it's a it's a marvelous shot. It's really creative framing. And it's not just sort of showing off what he can do with the camera. I feel like it it helps to create this sense of am I dreaming or am I awake, which really feeds into the scene that Rich talked about. But what I liked about this scene is that you have the door slam, but this is really more of a quiet moment. Most of the scares in this movie I feel like are jump scares to a certain extent. I mean they're not – they're not cats being thrown out of the, the closet at her, but they, they, they rely a lot on stingers and very quick movements and sort of jumps and startles uh, and that sort of thing. This was just a, a quietly upsetting scene that spreads not just from the from not just within the dream sequence, but bleeds out of the dream sequence and into reality because of that very cool shot when she wakes up and then sits up. Well, yeah, there's I mean, no fake scares in this movie. There's jump scares, but not fake scares. Really? That the Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, the fake scare is the cat. The fake scare is actually nothing's going on, right? I mean, am I wrong? No, you're you're right. You're right. It might be a dream, which is, you know, you could argue that a dream is a fake scare, but I don't That's, think so. I have I have a real hang up about the scare that is that is punctuated with the with the toaster. Yes, the the where the toast pops out of the. I know exactly what you're talking about. But, yeah, but I but I but I think I, John, I think your distinction still stands true. So <laughs> yeah, that that is borderline though. Yeah, <laughs> there is some exceptional filmmaking on display here, and some some wonderful shots, some some really interesting camera angles, which is something to say this far into the tournament. That I can still look at something and say, geez, I feel like I hadn't seen that before. That's creating a weird mood that uh, is really affecting me. That's not something I, I feel like you get a lot uh, after watching 32 horror films multiple times. Well, that's definitely something that I wasn't aware of necessarily until this viewing. But it spoke to me this time, Vic. So I think we're sort of on the same page of – this movie still has discoveries and impressive things that are subtle, but if you're paying attention, they 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 jump out and they're they're very cool. The the directing in general was is pretty effective. There's definitely something that that shot in particular. It felt very uh, sort of Coen Brothers esque to me. There's just something about rooting the, the camera to the character's orientation that's. Uh, a trick that they've pulled in a, in a few different variations over the, the course of their career, but which is not to say that it's it's at all derivative here. I'm glad you mentioned the, the the doll beat. I found the doll that little switch that that happens right there to be a very unnerving little move, um, while not directly scary. And to to John's point, like that, it's a nice little scare that is not only creepy but also provides some commentary on the the you know the the real story at play here about her relationship to her daughter and the way that her daughter relates to to losing the doll i mean like there's certainly like metaphors abound um with regards to mother-daughter relationships here and so this is a, a nice moment where it's part of the part of the scare as well 
I have an apology to make. I believe from the very beginning I've called this an Iranian film. It's set in Iran, but it's actually a British film. And it was nominated for a couple of BAFTA awards. Um, actually one outstanding debut by a British writer, director, or producer. But here's my pick for the highlight sequence. It has to be the scene where the movie plays a really masterful game with both the protagonist and the audience, with its sleight of hand about whether the little girl is with her mother or up in the apartment. And the mother makes a choice about where she, her daughter is, and it's wrong. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Fuck you, John. That's yeah. in the third act. Yeah, I'm with you, Vic. Okay, okay. Now, <laughs> I almost did a caveat, guys, but here's the thing. I don't want to talk for a half an hour about the end of the movie. And my, I have like a pretty long um, comment queued up. But it's about the very end of the movie. So yes, you guys, you called me out on my on my shit, and you were you were correct. Normally, I want the third act of the film to be in the ending discussion. Mia culpa. I'm sorry. I'm cheating. But breaking your own rule. Yep. Yeah, that's all right. The rules the rules don't apply to John. We knew <laughs> we knew that going in. It's fine. I, I, I just feel like if I'm going to talk for 20 minutes, let's split it into two parts. <laughs> so <laughs> what the scene that I'm talking about, yeah, it's pretty late in the movie. Uh, she's lured in. The mom, uh, Shide, is lured in by the little girl being under the bed. As she had been earlier, we've established that the little girl will hide under the bed. And so then when the mother goes to fish her out again, instead, this time, it's a monster wearing the same hooded jacket. It's not her daughter. And there's, like, nothing in there but a mouth with these big, blunt teeth, almost like a cool, snake. Huh? Yeah, it's a, it's a cool, like, weird monster. Yeah, it really is. I mean, it it doesn't quite fit into any one category because, like, to me, they're not, like, a bunch of jagged, sharp teeth. It's, like, just a... It's hard to put your finger on exactly. It's not really an animal, it, and it's not like sort of the traditional. Oh well, it's just this mouth of all these lethal teeth, like a shark or something. It's great. It's like it's just sort of uncanny, even in that it doesn't sort of pertain to nature in any recognizable way. Great shock and a very unnerving visual. And I believe one of you guys touched on this sequence the last time we talked about it. Of course. You know, that was a spoiler-free discussion, so this is sort of our opportunity to get more specific with it. So after that, Shide does escape this thing and makes it her way back downstairs to the basement where her real daughter is like, what the fuck, mom? (laughs) Except in Farsi and, you know, without the swearing. And in this watch, many things were more clear to me and more resonant Doubling back, part of why I love this scene so much is that the Jin's game is so much driving a wedge between the mother and the daughter. Most of its moves, like every step of the way throughout this film, in what the you know the things it hides or moves or you know presents to these characters, it's all about undermining the relationship, breaking down their trust, fomenting discord, 
and doubt and suspicion. It's interesting that they did this with a child so young, but it kind of makes sense because I was thinking if this, if the daughter was like a teenager, it would kind of be too easy, right? To, (laughs) to cause conflict between them at the The outset. The discord would be inherent with a teenager. Precisely, precisely. Because I was thinking, well, why did they do that? And then I'm like, yeah, if it was a teen, you know, they wouldn't have that normal degree of intimacy and unconditional love that one expects between a parent and a child before the preteen years just sort of inevitably break all of that all of that down. So the evil, the djinn has to earn its victory here. And most of the way through, it does. So, yeah, that's that's what I, I chose to highlight here. So, sorry, guys, if I broke the rules. And um, you, that doesn't mean you can. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but no, seriously, uh, you guys can't break the rules. Um, I actually found that visual a little less effective this time. Like you guys said, it's very hard to articulate because – it's framed in such an unusual way. And there is a, there is a jump scare element to it in that, you know, it sort of leaps out at you and you're like, Holy shit. And so I think the first time I watched it, it felt really effective. And, but watching it the second time, it did not, it just didn't play as well for me. I don't want to say it's all about that one shot because I, maybe I didn't do this justice, but what I, I really mean is the, the, the bomb alarm is going off And they have to get out of the apartment, as we've clearly established. And she's desperately trying to rush her daughter down the stairs to the shelter in the basement. And it plays this game with her where she hears her own daughter. She's like, that sounds like you, like screaming up there. And she's not sure whether the little figure with her in that same jacket who she, whose face she can't see is really her daughter. And your first thought, even this time... I'm thinking like, no, this is the fake daughter. Her real daughter's upstairs. Acknowledge it's not all about like, well, what does it look like when it gets her under the under the bed, right? Like this is a really masterfully done fake out, right? Or yes. am I wrong? No, no, no. I, I actually I, I totally agree with that. It is that part of it is very well done. You guys had just you guys had dressed that scene and both felt that it was effective and I wanted to tell you both that you're full of shit and you're wrong. It's <laughs> not it's fine, but this time it was less the, the actual visual of what was under the bed was a little less effective to me. The rest of it, I agree, works really well and it and really is probably the highlight of the movie. I would have mentioned it if it hadn't been in the third act, but that's fine. That's okay. Another caveat, Vic, under <laughs> under low light sequence, I said, I don't think this movie has a ton of high points. <laughs> yeah. But by the same token, I don't think it has a ton of low lights. So that's yeah. kind of what also motivated me to do that. That is totally, totally fair, John. Totally fair. And I'm sure that you'll remember that the next time one of us makes the same point. It better not be in the last 10 minutes, you fuckers. Yeah, of course. But I did want to say just, as on the on the notion of the the gin uh, driving a wedge between parents and children that I have while late for some appointment or something been tearing my house apart searching for a specific uh, uh, stuffed animal or Lego or God knows what thing my children have latched onto. And I really sympathized with her both like 
tearing the house apart trying to find this doll and also hating your child for making you tear the house apart to find that. Vic, there was this subtle distinction that I pointed out to my wife, um, which I thought was really interesting, also relating to that same uh, desperation that you're referring to. But it's that the daughter is always referring to the the doll as um, what's the what's the name of the doll in the the movie? I always want to say Jamie, but that's not it. Well, whatever it is, she's always referring to the doll by name, or she's referring to the doll by pronoun of her. You you lost her. You lost her. We have to find her. We have to find her. Kimia. Kimia. Um, so she's always referring to the doll by name or by the doll as though it is uh, another little girl. The mother always refers to the doll as an it. It is an object. So she's refusing to. And there's actually there's that one uh, there's that one scene where the mother is having a tea party with her daughter. But otherwise, I feel like overwhelmingly across the board the mother has a real reluctance to relate to the daughter on her own level. She's always trying to force the daughter to come meet her on her level. I don't know how that fits into the bigger picture of of what we're really talking about here, but especially with the constant uh, search for Kamiya that's, that's running through the, this film is like a a narrative spine almost. Um, I thought it was interesting that they both approach the doll from fundamentally different points of view as a toy versus a companion. It's worth noting that the dad gave Kimia to the child, not uh, the mother. This is giving me a lot to think about in terms of my relationship with my father, guys. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to, to talk to a therapist about this. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, this is so much better than the Babadook. I'm just gonna say that right off the bat. <laughs> yes, 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 a hundred percent. But I will say this is true. I have called the Los Angeles Zoo to ask if anyone found a small stuffed animal named Sparky. And my son did make sure that I told them his name was Sparky so that he would know, they would know when they found him. They did not, and we had to order a new Sparky. It was, it was a mess. So I'm, sympath- I'm sympathetic. A I'm faux sympathetic. Sparky. Yeah. The doppelganger Sparky. Well, I think all of this conversation is a really good segue to my low light sequence because it kind of ties into what you're talking about, Vic, with the tearing through the apartment looking for something. And, and look, I, I think I get it, but this time watching the movie again, I was noticing the number of scenes that are shot in a very similar way and depict a very similar action from the protagonist. I know there's a point to that repetition, but I feel like in multiple viewings, this would only grow more tedious. And what I'm talking about is Shide tearing apart the apartment looking for things. There's a definite definite escalation to it. And I do think that the scene where Dorsa comes in and sees that her mother has completely destroyed Dorsa's bedroom is a good scene. As at that point, Shide has been caught in her lies. She's been trapped trying to walk the parental tightrope between white lies and sharing unfathomable truths with children who are not ready for it. But she basically looks like a maniac. And there's just so many scenes in this movie where the camera is on Shide, her back is turned, she's just going through things and various degrees of franticness. To me, it, it, it just it struck me as a little repetitive and, and, and static. And as a side note, my other like 
nominee or runner-up for a low light is that avoiding the in-laws as a protagonist motivation for not only staying in a haunted house, but one that is under active missile barrage from a hostile nation, that is probably stretching credibility far beyond the breaking point. Depending on the in-laws, I guess, but to the movie's credit, this didn't seem as absurd watching the movie as it sounds when I say it, but that that was also a problem for me. Well, she, I, I do think there's there's something about her character that makes the stubbornness believable. There's something about her. She is so obstinate and is just kind of interested in like digging in her heels and living in her own self-suffering is the word that, that's coming to mind, but that's not a real phrase. She's definitely, she's wallowing a bit. In, in this film, emotionally speaking, and just kind of wanting to live in her own misery. And you get the feeling that this is a story of someone who I, I think is deeply depressed and, and following a lot of, you know, fighting off a lot of demons, both figuratively and, and literally. So the the element of it that she just like wants to, uh, the whole movie is taking place. You're right. She's either searching for Kamiya or she's in bed. That's the film. Yeah. And like, so sure, that's a depressed parent. Going to her in-laws would be admitting that she can't do it herself. And so it does sort of tie into her fears of being an insufficient mother. I don't know if that mitigates it exactly, but it does. There is a certain character motivation for the reason that she stays. But when you say missile barrage by a hostile nation – it does sort of say, geez, maybe you should get over your insecurities and just check into a hotel. Like, you know, I don't know, figure, figure something out where you're not dealing with this. You guys keep bringing it back to this, and I, I think it's a, a, a really interesting interpretation and probably true. I just like, does she have insecurities about being a good mother? I guess I don't feel like there's anything in this movie that indicates that that is in any way a priority to her. I mean, that's the fulcrum of the film. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying, like, how couldn't you see this? Because I didn't see this until just now, watching the movie this time. And I, for whatever reason, I'm pretty sure I've only seen this once. I don't know how I missed it with the scorecard round, but I'm convinced I have not seen this movie three times. Too many IPAs either way, but I don't remember this movie well enough to have seen it three times. But in any event, this time it was really clear to me that her identity as a doctor was who she wanted to be. It's it's still who she wants to be. We get that very clearly in in the beginning. But having that taken away from her, all that she has left is being a mother. And then society and and the djinn and her husband and even the neighbors to a degree start chipping away at even that. And her relationship with her daughter noticeably erodes so, but like, there's just many lines of dialogue about, oh, you're worthless, and her her daughter clearly like is is catching her and her lies and her deceit, and I just think like there's so many things that are pointing to the idea of can you per- keep your daughter safe so that that becomes like the central thing in this whole thing, like that it's clearly. Is she is her is her daughter healthy? No, she has this bad fever that won't go away. And is she losing track of her daughter? Is her daughter, you know, 
going into dangerous situations that her mother is, is not, you know, aware of or in control of. Yeah, it, the djinn is tricking her in that way. So I, I just feel like that's that's what the, the protagonist is is going after. Like the movie drops the whole medical thing or whatever. And it's not about surviving herself. Like it's all about keeping her daughter safe and healthy. Am I wrong? I understand everything you're saying. I just don't feel like there's ever any any indication that that is any sort of personal priority. Seems like she's more saddled with motherhood. I mean, I wouldn't say that, they, that it drops the medical thing. If anything, that's what the whole set piece about the missile crashing into the top of the building and her not being able to save the guy in the upstairs floor through CPR is just prolonging is the fact that she desperately wants to be that person that she thought she was at the beginning and she's just not. I just don't I don't Yes I, and no. I can't think of a moment in the movie where being a good mother to Dorsa is the thing that she has expressed wanting or even feels like is the thing she's supposed to be doing. Like Dorsa throughout the entire film always seems like a burden to her. She keeps trying to connect with her daughter. Does she not? There's a scene with the husband where her, she's, she's arguing that her husband wants to know why now, why are you suddenly interested in, in being a doctor, which has something to do with the fact, and we haven't talked about this, that her mother has recently passed away. So the, the mother-daughter connection has this other layer. There's lots of elements of that where she goes and puts the mother's picture down so she doesn't have to look at it. She brings it up with the neighbor at some point. But so that, I think, is really the trigger for why she's all of a sudden interested in going back to university and trying to become a doctor. Uh, but the, the husband wants to know why now. And she says, well, like all these people said, I can't do it. You even said I can't do it. He's like, what are you talking about? She's like, you told me to put off my school so that we could have the child. And now we've had the child. And he says, he says something like, well, what, you don't, you don't like being a mom to our child? And you can see how wounded she is when he says that. And so that's early on in the film. And I feel like that does set up that dichotomy of you want to be a doctor or do you want to be a mother because you can't do both. Well, I think we're both and, right. I mean, that is the conflict. Like both are important. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. No, but that's what I mean is I think that that's the, that's the thing. When he says to her, what, you don't, you don't enjoy being a mother to our daughter, that that is really what's what sort of pushes her to go, no, of course I do. Of course I'm a good mother. Like obviously I'm a good mother and trying to find, trying to find that, that, but she's not completely fulfilled by it. You know, that's 100% true. Yeah. Like if she just wanted to be super mom, like she'd be like, "Eh, fuck it. I can't go back to med school. No problem. You know, like one that I completely agree with that. But I think what the movie, what's at stake in the film is not, Will this woman get to go back to med school and become a doctor? No. What's at stake is her daughter. And that is where she realizes she needs to rise to the challenge in order to protect the person that she actually cares the most about. Yeah, maybe it's just your phrasing. Like, I, I, yes, I agree with you fundamentally. I just don't think that I, – I think that she is a – But is this a weakness? I guess what I'm saying is this the weakness of the film somehow. Like this dichotomy or this conflict within her. Perhaps. It's just, a, to me, it seems like a very weighted conflict. It seems like she doesn't want to be a mother. So, but, but 
but, but, but like she's sort of like forced to like coming to grips with that role um or at least that there's a small part of her but i wouldn't say that it's like a it, it's not like she started the movie you know being like well do i do i want to be a doctor or do i want to be a mom like she started the movie like wanting to be a doctor a hundred percent regardless of what her motivations were well i uh, think that I think the conflict is that she harbors some bitterness over the fact that she essentially gave up the chance to be a doctor in order to have her child, thinking that she would be able to then go back and be a doctor. And that opportunity sort of evaporated because of the Cultural Revolution. Well, there's two things going on. Like the fact that she was – she picked the wrong side politically is is a big part of it. Like she, she was on the left and the right one. So she was always going to be, you know, remembered for that, that, that the fact that she chose to be in medical school before the kid even was a factor, she chose to be politically active. That's like that, that mistake, quote unquote, is a big part of why doors are being closed to her now. Having a child is certainly part of it. And they sort of suggest, well, you could have maybe gone back to university right away if you hadn't had a kid. But, I mean, I think there's even sort of a complexity to this whole thing, which is that she will not be forgiven for picking the losing side in terms of the cultural revolution. I think these are all, like, super interesting points. And actually, like, the the end, which I found the, the last, like, you know, I won't, I won't get into the specifics yet, but it's like I found the last, like, 10 or 15 minutes of it to be kind of feeling like nonsense. When you take it in the context of, like, what you're talking about, I actually think you can – you know, extrapolate a lot of meaning out of it. I think that this is a really interesting angle and I don't think you're wrong. I just think that this is a pretty complex character. And I mean that in a good way. And you're, you're right that there are some muddy narrative points that are, that are causing like the argument that we're having now. But I think it's also a result of the fact that this is not a character for whom things are terribly clear, either for the audience or for the character herself. That's compelling. And I and I would say that in this film, like, she's a compelling character. I find the relationship compelling. Another thing that was sort of on the – in contention for a highlight for me is the scene where the where the daughter tries to strangle her. That is intense. Um, and that immediately reminded me of the witch when the when the daughter tries to strangle the – or successfully strangles the mother in the witch, right? Yeah. I well, I, I actually made the note about – because I, I brought it up when we were talking about – Oculus, but I made the note about the through line of haunted house films being about the the potential for parents to hurt their children when I watched the scene where she slaps the daughter. Mm-hmm. Because we've seen I think we see multiple instances of that across this subgenre where parents get frustrated and hit the child and then sort of have to reconcile, oh my god, I can't believe I just did that. And it makes them it's a it's such a risky move from a filmmaking perspective because it makes the parent such an unlikable character. And yet it also in in context is is kind of understandable. Like it's I don't want to say forgivable. It's never God knows. Don't ever hit your kids. But I just mean these movies, a lot of these movies are about parents grappling with the fact that they're capable of that, that you can get so angry and so frustrated that you're you're capable of hitting your own child. I don't think this movie ever loses sympathy for the mother. You know, like I feel like at every turn we're sort of seeing how hard 
it can be to be a parent, like the, the positions that she ends up being put in and the worst nightmare that you have as a parent where her, her daughter's like, well, wait, you said this. And she's like, well, yeah, that, that, that could be true, but like, she's just fucked, you know, because she, that's what I was getting at with the tightrope where she's constantly trying to manage her, her daughter's expectations and not freak her out too much while also not believing in a lot of the supernatural shit until a certain point. But eventually, like, she just looks to her daughter like a complete lunatic. And that's that's terrible, but you completely understand as an audience member how we got there. You know, it's not that Shide is actually, in any really fair way, failed anyone in this movie. Like, she's she's been doing the best she can, but, like, this, everything is sort of conspiring against her between the war and the neighbors and her husband and everything that this force, the Jin is throwing at her daughter. We, we empathize and understand where she is coming from. Even as like, I think it's fair to say she is mentally and emotionally deteriorating before our eyes. So that's why I think it's such a great depiction of it because we, we don't just say, ah, well, she's a bad mother or, ah, well, she went crazy or, well, she's possessed. No, like everything in their relationship is just psychological. It's just, it's real. I get why the daughter is distrusting her because the force is like putting all this evidence the the jinn is putting all this evidence that her mom is doing this crazy shit in front of her. And I get why, uh, the mother is losing her shit, like as anyone would. So I think it's a really great psychological portrait of what can go wrong in a, in a family. And that's, that's one of the great things about this genre, as Vic was saying, is that this genre is really about, well, what can go wrong in a family? How can loving families be, be torn apart? You you don't necessarily get that from monsters or zombies or you can, but you don't normally get that from other subgenres of horror. I agree with you. There's some issues with it being like the plot itself being a little redundant in a way that kind of serves the story. This movie is focused on all those character building elements that are very compelling, but the horror itself is sometimes a little weak. Well, yeah. I mean, this is a PG-13 movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Rich, that begs the question: What is your uh, what is your low light? My low light is what I think was probably the, the 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 cheapest of the dream sequences, which is the one where she wakes up and she sees the the tape <laughs> the tape that apparently can solve any problem in this world. But she wakes up and sees the the tape that's been uh, drawn across the windows in order to protect against bomb blasts, and it's flapping um, off the window. And she she wakes up to to go reapply it, and a, a hand bursts through the glass, uh, only to have her wake up and reveal that it was just a dream. Once again, it's not as it's not quite as bad as the as the toaster oven cat scare, but you know I'm willing to give all of these movies like one good dream sequence cat scare beat. You get one. It's just like your honorary admission in the in the the genre. 
But then after that, like, you need to deliver. You can't just give me scenes where the threat is not real and it's just in her mind or it's just part of her anxiety. Especially at this phase of the film, you know, we're, we're, we're close to the area where she's seeing – I can't I'm – I'm sorry, I can't remember if it's happening – right before or after where she's looking out the window and she's seeing a figure moving outside the window, despite the fact that she's on the third floor. And that image itself is very unnerving, but this is simply dismissed as a figment of her imagination. And at this point we're past that. Like we need to move into the exploration of the very real evil that's in her building. It's after the, the window thing is what, after she wakes up is when she sees the thing fly by the window. That's a, definitely something to, to talk about. And it actually inspires me to ask you guys, when does the Jin show up? Is it truly like there's nothing supernatural in this movie until that undetonated ordinance lands uh, on the floor above her? Is that like it comes in on the wind Because, like, the kid, the little kid, the weird, like, mute kid is already talking about ghosts and stuff before that. And we don't see anything supernatural. But I'm I'm, I'm kind of intrigued to wonder, like, when exactly does the djinn start influencing people in this building in some way? I mean, you you did seem to latch on to, like, that is the first time that anyone talks about the presence of or, or appearance of the djinn within the confines of that building. And before that, the little mute kid has, I think as far as we know, has only given Dorsa something to ward off the djinn. A pile of cat fur, apparently, that her mother threw away. Yeah, yeah I think Vic's holding one of those right now. <laughs> I, I was. The, the pile of cat fur is now sleeping under the desk. My, my cats are still hungry. I think the most obvious reading of this is that the djinn comes in on the wind. Well, we certainly know that the djinn is attracted to uh, fear and anxiety. And maybe the fear and anxiety in this building hits a, a boiling point when, you know, the guy dies in his armchair and all of that. And, and like, apparently that's the djinn's first victim is that the missile comes through the, the roof. He's fine. She goes that his daughter goes to get him a glass of water and then the djinn like shows up and says, hey, you, you didn't need to worry about the missile. You need to worry about me. And then he has a heart attack, you know, in some way. I think that's what the movie is saying. But I'm just like wondering, we have a lot of sort of mythological buildup before that. And that's like 25, 30 minutes into the film. I don't know what to make of it. I'm just throwing it out there. No, I think it shows up with the with the ordinance. I mean, okay. I think that because I because just metaphorically, I feel like that sort of fits. That's that's the threshold. Like they're already scared, they're already vulnerable. But but when that happens, the Iraqi missile hits. That truly opens the door. It's yeah. it's, it's it's so funny because like while I didn't. While I really don't feel like it is in any way derivative, it is weird how much, how similar it is to the unexploded ordinance in The Devil's Backbone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a pretty odd trope, right? Like, you've got a missile in your in your midst and it doesn't blow up. That's very specific. In this movie, though, they just, like, crane it right out of there. They just like, hey, okay, we'll take care of that. Missiles I actually 
I love that shot though of them just craning the the missile mm-hmm. out of there, and I, you know you're like you're literally I was literally watching it, being like, is it gonna blow up now? Like, <laughs> is it still gonna blow up? Who's the guy who puts the ropes around the unexploded ordnance for the crane? Does he get hazard pay? What's up with the little kid then? Like, he just like his parents died somewhere. And he shows up, and he kind of knows the score, and he knows something like this is going to happen somehow. I mean, you I, could see by the logic that you were exploring, it's like he's probably of the characters that we know in the story has experienced the most like fear and anxiety, so has probably come had the closest brushes with Jin. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I know that Vic's done more research on this than certainly I have, so maybe you have some insight. I don't. I mean, I think this is this is literally just a tonal thing. He exists to remind you that you're watching a horror film during the first 30 minutes while we set up the character dynamics. And, and don't forget that he's mute, but he's talking to the the little girl. He's talking to Darsa. So there's already Dorsa. So there's already something semi supernatural going on there. No shit. I thought you said I was on mute for a second. And then I had just been talking into, into the ether. No, you you were never talking into the ether, Vic. <laughs> yeah, but you, you you know what I'm saying? Like, there's already something quasi supernatural in it. Like, well, he hasn't talked to anyone for two years, but you know, he told he told Dorsa about the gin. So, what's up with that? But- but that's it. It's it's eerie. It's tonal. It, but it's not actually. It's it's not actually the presence of the antagonist. I don't think that arrives until the ordinance does. I like the characters in this movie. The woman who's taking care of that boy. Um, I love her character. That she's just this, this sort of like this busybody who no one, certainly not our protagonist, like wants to talk to or or engage with. And then when she's talking about the little boy, like she's just talking shit about him constantly and like what a weirdo he is. And yeah. uh, I, I feel like the, the, the characters and characters in this film are very well drawn. Um, and I appreciate that. I look forward to, to seeing them again in this viewing. Yeah, it was definitely a movie where the supporting characters are very grounded and authentic and real, but, but are somehow, you know, entertaining in some way. And I think that's a, that's a real benefit. I'm glad you mentioned that something that, um, I don't know where to fit it in, but I just, I I want to, the fact that this movie is set in Iran and even though it's a British movie, which makes me question like the justification for this, this is an attractive protagonist and she's wearing sweatpants in the entire film. We couldn't have had even like her legs or something. Maybe I'm just being too much of a fucking guy. But one of the things that this movie lacked for me was there's zero, zero sexuality to it. And this chick is hot and I just wanted some... It can be completely tasteful, but like it was a little disappointing that it's completely devoid of any sensuality whatsoever. Is, well, John, did you guys feel this way at all? John, we're in the we're in the middle of a pandemic, and one of the things that <laughs> I've noticed is that women tend to uh, dress up when they're going out to be seen. And when they're not going out to be seen, they they tend to wear 
sweatpants or, or leggings. Dude, well, now hold on. I'm talking about when you look at her attire when she gets out of bed, like uh-huh. she is absolutely ready to go for a run or something in what she's wearing to her bed. Yeah, but I'm just saying, if when every time you leave the house, you have to wear a burqa that covers you from the top of your head to the floor, when you're not wearing the burqa, aren't you just going to lay around in sweatpants? In a weird know. way, it, because it, of... It, the, it, makes, it makes a lot of sense to me, I, actually, as a character. Because of the culture of the film, like, they had almost indoctrinated me that, like, if I saw her, her fucking calves or the small of her back, I would have been like, ooh, that's hot. You know, like, but nope, we don't even get that. I, I mean, I don't think that's unintentional. Also, I would disagree. There's, there's some very nice, like, profile shots when she's, like, she's in bed. She moves the right way when she needs to. There's I a do, little booby stuff, a little booby stuff. I, I think that, that given, given the fact that, uh, that yes, that we're, we're meant to understand that she is living in the outside world under this, uh, burger that she doesn't necessarily want to be or at least it's indicated that she doesn't want to be wearing it that she is uh appropriately revealing when she's at home i mean i'm with you like i would like to have to have had it gone another way but i'll say that just in terms of like the reality of the film it makes sense but rich uh, you've been talking about this whole season like the the milfs in 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 this (laughs) subgenre like if we had had one shot of this chick walking down the hallway in her granny panties like that would have been amazing I'm just saying. Don't get, me, don't get me wrong. Like she'd probably be in my top three for the season. I'm just saying that, like, if, if we're talking about from a script point of view, buying it. Also, I noticed that like she only has like two outfit changes in the entire film. Yeah. Despite the fact that it seems to go on for weeks, like she's just recycling the same like set of clothing over and over again, day after day. And I, I would have to imagine that that is a deliberate choice. Um, I'm not sure what it's trying to say, but. Um, but it does seem like it was it was intentional. So I think she doesn't have a, a whole lot of options. Her Look, wardrobe is limited. I've been stuck in a house with my wife for the last three months, and that, that seems pretty realistic. I am going to note that my wife started a new job today uh, in Santa Monica where she had to wear office attire and wear makeup, and I was uh, profoundly pleased uh, to look upon her. Let's just put it that way. There you go. Let me jump in because I want to say that my one of my low lights. It's weird. All right, so I have I have two low lights. One of them I don't know if it counts because it's the absence of something. But one of my low lights is as I I sort of alluded to previously, the exposition dump we get from the landlady. It's like oh they come on the wind and if they get something personal of yours, then you know they they'll stick with you forever uh-huh. and. Well, wait, was, why? Why is that so awkward? Like, what's the? I mean, it it just it just felt very shoehorned in. This woman was like, "Oh no, something came with the bomb. Here's this vital vital piece of information you need." It. I don't know. It just. It I, I, was, the only thing I'm going to say in response to that, Vic, is that you can probably count on one hand the number of horror movies that handle that kind of mythology expo better like all so many of these movies we love them but that's usually not handled in an incredibly smooth and seamless way i'm totally aware of that unfortunately the movies that does it better is running against this film that's true very true john as you've said this is a really good movie 
there's not a lot of low lights to sort of pick from. That one just felt it felt very shoehorned in. It, even more so than because I liked the the way that we got information from the mute kid, or at least by you know through sort of hearsay from the mute kid. I thought that was a much more elegant way to feed us some of the information that we needed to know. But it seemed like oh, but there's some other stuff we need you to know. So we're gonna do, we're just gonna have this scene. It just felt forced. It did not feel organic to the story they were telling. But well, by the way, one of the issues with that is who the fuck is she? Like, she just happens to have books about this on her bookshelf. Like, there's really not a lot of logical justification for her being the source of information. Is that part yeah. of it? Yes, I, certainly that's part of it. It didn't work. I, she doesn't strike me as a character who you're like, oh, well, yeah, I bet she knows about Jin. Right. I mean, they I guess have that's that information. And there's and there's just there's nothing else to the scene. I mean, it's, she goes to drop off the rent and no, 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 come in, come in, come in, come in and talk to me about Jen for five minutes and then go back to the rest of the story. I do love the way that everyone, including her, just leave. Well, I've got somebody here and I've got somebody there and they all like just this is crazy. We shouldn't be here. Like, that is very believable and organic, the way that plays out, that they're abandoned. I agree, and I love – I mean, I think that's part of what's moving about that final shot. There's a scene when they when – the, once they've left after – Wait, whoa, door, whoa, nope, whoa. Nope, nope, you shut the fuck up. I'm going to talk about the end, and you're going to take it, John. You're going to take it. God damn you. <laughs> that was very the- weirdly sexual. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to take it. <laughs> All right, go ahead. We're going to talk about that in therapy too. Uh, there's a shot of the empty parking garage with leaves blowing through it that I felt like was the parking garage has been this this very integral setting for so many scenes and so many talks about this and that and these are the people leaving and blah, blah, blah. And I felt like it was a nice visual way of like the building is now completely vacated. Everyone has left. There's no one left in this apartment building. So I just thought that was a nice sort of cap to put on that on that element. But that's completely distracting me from what I was trying to say, which is that what really pisses me off about this movie, and I probably mentioned it the first time, but I'm going to say it again. The fourth floor apartment is empty. The girl keeps saying the doll is up there. She knows her medical book is up there. Why doesn't she go up and get those things? I'm actually confused about that. I think that the fifth floor is actually where the ordinance hit. I don't she, think it's the fourth floor. She says the the when she's talking in the expository scene, she says, "Oh, I'm sorry, my daughter was was yelling and banging or whatever." And the, when she's sort of explaining about the gin, she says, "Well, why do you think she was up on the fourth floor?" Well, Come yeah, the please. daughter the daughter was upstairs banging on the door, but she wasn't in the apartment. No, but she couldn't. That's what I'm saying. Knock down the door. Get a crowbar. The moment she buys into the mythology that the djinn has something personal, once they have it, they're never going to leave you Wait, alone. the doll is not up there. Like, the, no, what the ghost or the djinn said was that it was on top of the shelf, and then the, they fi- actually find the doll in her secret drawer. So, yes, yeah, no, no, no. she knows about the djinn, book, but... No, no, no. I disagree. I think the djinn had it. I think it was on the fourth floor. I think when they took the book, they put the doll there. That's correct. Well, okay. Yeah. Okay. 
But so I think I think if she had just knocked down that door, the doll would have been there and she could have gotten it back. Certainly before she left or once she accepted the, the mythology of it, once she knew the book was in there, she could have just gone in and gotten it. There's nobody left in the apartment building. Okay, well, you're definitely talking about the ending now, which which, which is fair because that's what we, we need to talk about. But the idea that she leaves the book behind, thereby dooming herself, right? But if she understands the mythology, she knows that the book was the item that's dear to herself. And that well, is... Knows. Correct me if I'm wrong. Did she not know that that was there before we got... I mean, isn't that kind of the second plot point? She's on the roof and she looks down and she sees the book there. Right. Right. Why she would not like, there's no obvious threat to, to keep her from going down there and getting, getting the book. I think that almost fits into the, the category of a criticism because if she's buying in late, possibly if she's buying into the mythology, she should know, that we can't leave these items behind or we're fucked. And this is leading me into my commentary about the ending. Yeah, that would be sort of dumb and or suicidal. Yeah. They really leave under duress, not from the bombs, but from the gin. Yes, they do. And so if you don't, if you don't want to leave and the gin is haunting you because it has a personal item and you know where the personal item is... Why don't you go get it? It's upstairs. It's not like it's in another I mean, dimension. It's not in the fucking further from Insidious. <laughs> it's just upstairs. Yeah, there's no actual like, you know, gatekeeper gatekeeper or something that would keep them from going up there. Yeah. My my bigger problem with the film is I feel like it's more interested in servicing the the drama and the allegory of the the mother-daughter relationship than it is the actual horror. And I think that the purpose is that to John's point about the the bigger story of this thing is that at the end, what you're being told is that ultimately she was given two roads and the road she chose was the road of protecting her daughter. But ultimately her medical history, her calling as she saw it, the thing that she thought she was is still lingering somewhere in her past, threatening to come back at any time. We could just have an entire conversation about, the sort of feminist reading of this and how her identity is unfairly suppressed and channeled in these directions that it would not have been her choice. But that's, you know, that's not really what we're adjudicating this horror film on. The consistency and merit of thematic intent is definitely something that I think we all respond to. I'm just going to give you guys my my honest read on this ending. I think Vic has thrown serious doubt on the sort of logic of, of my interpretation of the ending, but I'll, I'll throw it out there and let's go from there. Because just as a viewer, it worked for me. And I'll, I'll tell you why. I don't think I'd really processed this ending fully last time we saw it. The dynamic with the personal objects just sort of didn't resonate with me until now. And now it's totally obvious. The fact that the doll head remains on the basement stairs forgotten suggests that whether you, whatever we're doing with the book is that the mother thought that she'd gotten the doll out and the doll head didn't come out. It's forgotten. And thus her daughter is still cursed or doomed or 
you know, destined to be possessed or whatever. And then, yes, the medical textbook is still up there in the neighbor's apartment. That makes this an extremely dark ending. It's not a fake dark ending or a dark ending that's desperate to seem happy like both Ouija, Origin of Evil, and The Orphanage. This is an ambiguous ending. It's a subtle ending, but it's one that offers only one true reading that's not open to interpretation, in my opinion. These people are escaping nothing. They remain cursed. And wherever they're going, the djinn will follow. And I'm talking about we end with a shot of that doll head on the step and the, after the decapitated doll in the back seat, and then the pages fluttering in the wind of the medical text. If you've been following the movie and you're up to date on the mythology here, you know that these characters remain cursed. And wherever they go, the djinn will follow. If anything, they're leaving their only hope to win behind because they're not going to be able to have the, get those objects wherever they go. If the djinn possesses an item of great personal significance to you, this means they're now attached to you and you're likely to end up possessed. This, for me, is the kind of ending that I love in a horror movie. It's an ending that's not so crude and literal as the monster or the evil force or the antagonist pounding the protagonist's face to mush and walking away roll credits, but sort of, you know, symbolically, that's exactly what this ending means. With the orphanage, if you're not really paying attention, you can think, yay, they got away. If you're not really paying attention in this movie, that, that might be your conclusion. It's a happy ending. And even if you do get it, it's not super like disturbing. You're not, it's not visceral, but this is a bleak ending, guys. Like, even if the mother and daughter aren't possessed or flayed alive or whatever might be in uh, in store for them on camera, we know this ending is dark as a moonless midnight. And I like it. It also suggests that she would have been a terrible doctor given that she can't properly sew the head on a doll. <laughs> she, she duct taped it. Even worse. I'm just saying. I just uh, here's my thing, John, is that if you while I agree with the the read you just gave on like the the very ending of the film and its its effectiveness, if you remove like the feminist reading from this film, then the final like battle, so to speak, in the basement is utter like ghostly nonsense only the the feminist reading that that you actually have you know, sort of like put on this, at least for, for me, like in terms of like the, the interpretation actually makes the ending of this film compelling. The idea of what is it that she's trying to like this identity that she is actively battling and both resisting and, and embracing at the same time and trying to find out what, where her place is um, within it. Like that to me is compelling and can coexist with the fact that she can't really run from this haunting. Like this haunting is going to be, is going to be with her and it's going to be part of the relationship with her daughter um, moving forward. And, you know, whether you want to attribute that to the supernatural or the, the, the cultural ramifications that this movie is clearly trying to like overlay on top of that, like either way, it's a, it's pretty effective, but I think actually you, you rob this of some of its power um, by not trying to embrace that like allegory. Wait, 
how am I not embracing that allegory? Well, you were talking about like sort of like separating it from the from the feminist reading of it. Oh well, no, yeah, I I understand now. No, I, I was definitely saying, what are we here to adjudicate? And I see. You know, we're not saying a feminist reading of a horror film for us, because this is a deeply personal experience that would not be true for everyone does not necessarily elevate the film, but we shouldn't be blind to it because like, it certainly should add resonance and meaning and, and hopefully emotional power to it. Even if it doesn't necessarily make it a quote unquote, better horror film. That's what I was trying to get at there. Vic, I'm sure can elaborate on this, but what I'm taking away from Vic is that if you are strictly judging this on the standards of horror, which I think is essentially what you're saying, like in terms of what we're here to adjudicate, that there's some there's some major faulty logic that that actually gets you to that that pitch black ending that you're referring to. Faulty logic in regards to what the characters are doing. You, you're not buying. What or 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 just in terms of the mythology? I'm, I don't totally follow yeah, you. The, mm-hmm. the, the leaving behind of the objects when it clearly could have been a, right. I mean, like if her real goal was to be rid of the ghost, and she was thinking clearly, then she could have done that. Yeah, that's fair. That's totally fair. If we're adjudicating the horror of this, I do want to point out that the climax of this film is mom fighting through a sheet. <laughs> And then trying to climb through some mud, and that's it. And I found that just really underwhelming. Again, yeah. this is a PG-13 movie. <laughs> I don't give a shit. The Ring is a PG-13 movie. It had a better ending. Yeah, I'd say if we're yeah. strictly adjudicating horror, that, that basement fight is pretty lame. I think this is definitely a, a movie that is not as as scary as it is interesting so yeah do with that what you will and usually i am the person on this podcast that says i want to be viscerally grabbed (laughs) by the balls by a horror movie (laughs) like that's what i want that's what i look for and this movie doesn't necessarily do that but at the same time guys i'm you know i'm sorry i i know you, you you both Vic likes uh, The Orphanage, and Rich likes Paranormal Activity 3. I think I would much rather watch this film than either of them. So, But it is what it is, for different reasons. You know? <laughs> I do not want to be forever associated as the champion of Paranormal Activity 3. I do not feel like it's fair. I have not earned that. Well, then don't Dude. text me um, that it would beat The Shining, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Air texts, John. <laughs> yeah, sometimes Rich just likes to troll me. <laughs> it worked, Rich. <laughs> All right. So, thoughts on the ending? I think we just did that, right? No, nothing else. We're done. I, I think we. I think we pretty much did it. I, I will agree with you, John. That I actually, I did find it effective. I liked it. I actually loved the last shot, despite the fact that Vic, you're the logic that you're laying out there about her going back to get the book makes perfect sense. Um, I still found it to be at least, at least laid out and shot well enough that I found it to be interesting and and kind of a chilling uh, final beat to the story. But yeah, uh, other than like, if we're just going to like 
if we're going to jump past the the fight against the burka in the basement, um, which I thought was incredibly lame and just completely lost me the first time I watched this, and the second time just left me feeling very flat. Like I found the final couple of minutes pretty compelling and and did feel like it drew everything together. So I yeah, I mean I, I liked it and I, I agree. It felt grim and and hopeless in a, in a way that that also felt sort of meaningful to the characters and for a story like this, that's important. So. Um, I was down with it. I like the final shots as well. Rich, I, I have to say, this literally is just hitting me, that as much as I agree with you about the ending, the fact that you characterize it as a fight against the burqa gives it some symbolic meaning that maybe I missed until just the second. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's exactly what this character is doing throughout the exactly. entire film. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, that's that. I mean, that that's what I meant by like when I was sort of misinterpreting John is like saying like if you separate it from like the allegory in here is that like yeah when when John said that and I thought about what was going on in the basement it's like sure like that that's what she's been resisting this entire time she's equating you know theoretically I mean and I could be misreading this I'm obviously like I am not super familiar with all the the cultural. Um, subtleties here but the like she's equating some of what that that burqa means with the motherhood that she's you know feeling like saddled with and so she's being forced to both come to grips with motherhood and battle that identity at the same time and then you know even that like the, the bit that follows the sheet where it's like then suddenly she's feeling like stuck or like or mired in a sort of swamp that her daughter has to help pull her out of like Sure, like I can see symbolism in there that I can appreciate, but it does suck as a as a horror movie. And oh yeah, it's absolute shit. I didn't have such a strong reaction to it. I mean, look, now, I'm not I'm not going to say it's amazing, but if she'd been impaled with a boat anchor, then we could <laughs> fucking talk. <laughs> All right, brass tacks. Let's do the voting, and each of us give some comparison and rationale for where you cast your ballot starting with you rich what uh which of these films will advance and why there's a lot of compelling argument uh, arguments well <laughs> <laughs> sorry i guess hey, it's gentlemen it's 12 30 it's 12 30 in the morning <laughs> arguments Oculus. The sequel, the sequel to Oculus. There are a lot of compelling elements to both of these films. Under the Shadow has a lot to talk about. Honestly, more than I was really expecting to to talk about. There is some some great character work in it. There's some some really interesting symbolism that I feel like we almost really got to scratch the surface of tonight. And while I have my reservations about oculus it's pretty hard to deny that it is just a more compelling film certainly to me it's something that i'm excited to go revisit whereas i feel like watching under the shadow again sounds like frankly a little bit of a drag i think i kind of kind of wrung everything i needed to out of it whereas i am convinced this you know going into what could be like a fifth viewing potentially of, of oculus i'm convinced that there's actually more to discover there and I'm excited to do so. So I'm casting my vote for Mike Flanagan's debut flick. Or is it was it his debut? I'm sorry. No, no, but um, 
It's it's early in the career. Yeah. Okay. All right. Eloquently put, Rich, and I think you make some very strong arguments there. Uh, Vic, talk talk us out of it. Give us the argument for under the shadow. <laughs> Rich, thanks for thanks for kneecapping absolutely everything I was going to say. That's I, I just I really appreciate that. So I'm going to flounder here for a couple of minutes, and then John can take over. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I what I would say. I mean, what what Rich said about the the prospects of watching uh, Oculus versus Under the Shadow is exactly what I felt going into this. I really had a hard time like mustering the the will to put on Under the Shadow again. I'm this conversation, and I'm I'm really glad we're doing this because this conversation has illuminated a lot of things that make it a richer experience. And I wish I had gone into it uh, on a second viewing with more of an open mind, but I didn't. And I don't really want to do it again now that we've illuminated those things. I'm sure maybe somewhere down the road I'll want to, I'll want to check it out again. But Oculus, I'm genuinely excited about. It's a movie that has gotten under my skin in the four, three, four viewings over the last couple of months. And I think it's a real contender uh, to to win this competition. And so I definitely have to cast my vote for Oculus. You know, we traded some texts before recording tonight, like about criteria and what are we really looking for. And on one level, I was thinking about, you know, sort of cultural impact and lasting esteem and, and things like that. And... I, I really think that under the shadow will will have a life, you know, like it's not gonna be forgotten. Of course I put some value on that because I think it's it's very distinct and unique and complex and I I really respect it. Whereas like on some level Oculus is a little more you know, mainstream and facile and acceptable or accessible and like I part of me wants to fight against that and go for the more artistically charged film but there's just there's no doubt about it I I I just Oculus is way more up my alley so yeah that's it is what it is and that's this is a deeply personal process you know we're not this is not, we're not quoting, you know, metrics or calculating the, the most number of reviews or that's what make this, makes this show unique is that we're going from, we're three guys that love horror films and we are going to shoot from the hip and choose the films that grab us, that are meaningful to us on whatever level that is. And I think we're all in agreement that Oculus is the, the most fascinating of these two, which is definitely not an insult to under the shadow. Cause it is fascinating, but this is the point in the, in the tournament where choices get tough. So I'm with you and we'll move on with that in mind. Oh my God. That actually, that gets us out of the 16. Is that right? right? Yeah, we are on to the Evil Eight, gentlemen. 
We haven't completely nailed down our criteria or our process for that round because this is the inaugural season of March Mad Men. But um, hopefully we'll we'll be able to change things up enough that uh, it brings a different dynamic and different criteria to the table. I think Evil 8, each one of us picks a movie to defend, and then we, we just fucking wrestle. We just battle it out, and, and whoever's left standing, their movie gets to advance. Like uh, Vic again getting homoerotic on us. Uh, we just we just oil up, right? We get we get a lot of olive oil and just and just see what happens. And just man. take it, take it. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! <laughs> well, we'll let y'all know what we decide next time as we enter the Evil Eight. For now, I'm John Evans. Saying goodnight for Vic Wheat and Rich Eckersley. Good night, everybody. Stay fresh, cheese bags. <laughs> Adios! Stay fresh, cheese bags. I like it. I like it. <laughs> <laughs>